Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debuckery, but he be filled with spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, always and for everything, giving thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Give thanks in all times, Paul tells us this morning. Give thanks in all times and in all circumstances. Here and in many of Paul's letters, he urges us to give thanks in any circumstance. This is a difficult thing for Paul to be asking us to do. And in fact, in, as I think about scenarios, I, I, it seems like an impossible task. All the numerous things that life deals us and all the things that are going on in the world and the even even now, every time we open a newspaper, it seems like another another disaster or another catastrophe or another tragedy is facing us. And yet there is something to this notion that Paul tells us that there is benefit to finding the ability to be grateful in good times and in bad and to make sense of it all and feel right. And, you know, Paul's not just throwing this out there. Paul is writing to the churches at a time when it was not easy to be a Christian and it was not easy to rejoice in all of the difficulties that were going on. Uh, While they were not yet being fed to the lions, the first century Christians began to experience an ostracizing in many of their communities. Uh, It was difficult. They were seen as the earliest Christians were seen as strange. They were some kind of weird new cult that people were were joining. In fact, the Romans called them atheists because they only worshiped one God, right? So it's like they didn't believe in God all the gods and so therefore they were atheists, right? Some kind of new can you imagine being called atheists? <laughs> Uh, back in the first century so that's how bizarre and and there were all these rumors about the things christians did eating jesus's flesh and drinking his blood and all of that kind of thing which made christians sound very strange in addition to that around 70 a.d the temple was destroyed by the romans because of a, a jewish uprising and when that temple was destroyed it really caused this huge rift between the Christians and the Jews, mainly because when the Jews wanted to rebel against Rome, they invited the Christians to join them. The Christians said, no, you know what? We're taking a peace route. We're not going to take up arms against the Romans. And that kind of caused a little tension. And then Christians didn't help things by, by when the temple was destroyed, the Christians started seeing it as a judgment against the, the Jewish aristocracy and the Jewish, the, you know, the main Jewish body that was there. And so ultimately it caused this rift between the Christians and the Jews and they started getting kicked out of the synagogues. In the first century, the very first Christians, they used to go to, you know, they would go to Sabbath service on Fridays, go to the Shabbat, 
and go to the synagogue, and then on Sunday they would have their love feast with their Christian friends. It was really, it was really kind of hazy, I mean, as to whether or not they were Jewish or something else, right? And it seemed to be this sect of Judaism until about 70 when the temple got destroyed. And then there seemed to be this permanent rift between the two, and pretty soon the Christians were getting kicked out of the synagogues altogether. And in addition to that, the choice to become a Christian often created rifts within families, right? Children and parents parting ways over this choice and, and causing all kinds of troubles. So the audience of this letter had some very real troubles and some very real problems. Not to mention being oppressed by the Roman, you know, the Roman Empire, uh, being an oppressed people in occupation by Rome. That in and of itself was pretty harsh for the Jews and the Christians in Palestine. And so the, the earliest Christians had real things to deal with real problems, real sorrowful times. And Paul comes to them and says, give thanks in all situations and in all circumstances and be glad for your situation. And in fact, as the persecution becomes more intense, the hope to which Christians cling even becomes grander as the writings go on and Christianity becomes even more difficult they hang on to this idea for their own survival. The oppressed people hang on to this sense of positive, it's not just positive thinking, but this sense of hope found in Christ. I mean, think of Revelation. Revelation is written in a time when oppression against Christians had become very acute and very pointed and very focused. And what Revelation points to is, is it a dramatic intervention of God. And the hope that comes with that dramatic intervention by God to take things out, to fix the world, to, to repair what has been broken. I don't think we, you know, we growing up in the United States in this time and in this place quite understand the, the importance of that, a word of hope that comes from a book like Revelation. But, uh, you know, I think the African slaves in the United States had a unique understanding of this concept of bringing, of, of, of having joy even in the midst of oppression. Many a slave owner in their writings noted the joy of the slaves that they held in captivity, singing and dancing after a day of back-breaking work. Most pass this off as ignorance on the part of the slave, thinking the African too stupid to know that they were oppressed. But in reality, their joy was a subversive act of resistance. In reality, their joy was a, a big flip-off to the masters, if I can put it that way. They refuse to let the white slave master deny them their spiritual joy and their social joy. And I think you know, that offers this unique understanding of what Paul is getting at around this whole idea. And furthermore, they grounded their joy in the hope of what tomorrow could bring, sometimes having to look so far as to the day when they all went to heaven and they finally lived in the freedom 
that's promised by Christ. In the life where your own life is out of your own control, that hope becomes a lifeline and so crucial. So in this instance, giving thanks in all things was an act of resistance, not allowing the slave master to enslave the spirit. Amen. This notion of gratitude as resistance is an intriguing one, and I think it makes a lot of sense. It allows the victim to cease being victimized. It allows a person to hold on and hold back a part of themselves even when they are not in control of what happens to them physically. It denies the perpetrators of evil their ability to steal one's joy. Imagine how frustrating that is to someone who's trying to steal your very soul to be met with your joy in the love of Christ. How frustrating. (laughs) How in your face can it get? As I think about people, the Jews under Nazi death camp imprisonment or people who have been victimized and abused by someone, it seems to me discovering gratitude seems like a very healthy way to claim one's life back and hold on to that sense of hope. Another way of looking at this mandate to give thanks in everything is to recognize that old adage, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. Paul suggests this in Romans saying, but we also boast of our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Amen. Recognizing that and making it through our most difficult struggles develops us in strength, in character, in hope, and in courage and makes giving thanks in all things a valuable tool in our own spiritual growth. I watched, uh, you know, I, I think about, there was a show, I can't remember the name of the show, it doesn't matter. But <laughs> the, anyway, uh, they, they were having this discussion about God, and, and Morgan Freeman was in it, playing God, I think. It was one of those God shows. And uh, he says, do you think when you, at, when you pray for patience, God gives you patience? Or does God put you in a situation where patience is required and you have to struggle through patiently, right? And I think there's a lot of wisdom in what Morgan Freeman has to say there. You know, and, and another, and you all know this, living in Utah, I got to tell you, living in Utah is not living, is not like living in Seattle at all, right? I know this doesn't come as a shock, but in Seattle, you know, you can go your entire life without anyone ever asking you what you believe about God, never being posed with the question, what is your faith life like? And that is not the case here, right? <laughs> right? Within two days of moving back, my wife Robin had been asked to church and had to admit she was Baptist. Right there, within a, within a few, just moving here, right? Although I will say, growing up in Utah has always been a mixed bag of blessing and curses. On the one hand, I grew up feeling like an outsider in almost every public setting I went to. And feeling... You know, somehow, no matter how much I fit in, still feeling like I didn't quite fit in. Except 
at church. Except at church. And the truth is, I'm kind of grateful for the culture of Utah that forced me to decide whether I was indeed a person of faith and then posing the question, what is that faith going to look like for me? Living, there's a lot of places I could live where that would never have come up. And I could have gone my whole life not even wondering what I believed in and what my faith was about. So I'm grateful for growing up here and having to struggle through that in the midst of difficulty finding the joy of a church home where I finally did feel like I belonged and fit in. Another observation I make is that to give thanks in all things recognizes that there is more than just what we have and experience here in the world today. There is something more. I may be broken here today, but someday I will be whole. I may be downtrodden today, but someday I will know great joy. I may be sick today, but someday I will, be bl- I will be well again. I may be blind, but someday I will see. Jesus may be locked up in a tomb today, but come Sunday, He will rise from the dead and live again. There is something more than what we experience today. That hope, that hope of tomorrow is what we can rejoice in. Amen? The hope of what the possibilities are and the daring to dream about those possibilities can be for us a source of joy in the midst of our deepest sorrow. This is having an eschatological mindset. That's a fancy church theological word for living in the here and now and living in the yet to come. It is the praise that comes from the psalmist in Psalm 30. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks to you forever. It is the promise of heaven and eternal peace. It is the promise of something more and something worth rejoicing about. Give thanks in all times and in all things. It's easy to say say that. But when we face life's most difficult and sorrowful moments, it's often hard to find the faith to give thanks. And yet many of us would testify that there often comes that moment in the midst of strife, in the midst of sorrow and mourning, in the midst of loss, when the reality of blessedness becomes a real and a healing balm that is a salve to our broken hearts. The hope is what heals over time. I have to admit, I don't know deep sorrow like that. Uh, But I think of Horatio 
Spafford. And I know a lot of folks here have experienced the kind of loss that Horatio experienced in 1873 when his four daughters were lost, when the ship they and their mother were on sank. And their mother was rescued, and he, she sent word to Horatio saying simply, saved alone. And going back to England to meet his grieving wife, he penned of his famous hymn as the ship passed over the place where his four daughters perished. When peace like a river attendeth my way, sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Loving God, we, we lift to You our hearts. And we seek now Your Spirit that will help us in the midst of every deep sorrow, in the midst of every obstacle, in the midst of every difficulty and hard time that we fall upon. May we find the ability within ourselves and with You to rejoice, to count our sorrows, to count our struggles, rather, as blessings, knowing that with Your help, with the help of Your church, there is nothing we cannot get through, no struggle that we cannot face. With Your courage, we can live in the hope of something more. May that something be realized in us today, even as we hope for heaven. In the name of Christ we pray.